You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 10th of November 2022 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Emma Nelson. And coming up, Russian troops retreat from Kherson as America's top general warns of the catastrophic loss of life in Ukraine. We'll have the latest. Also ahead, Monocle's contributing editor Andrew Muller explores Beijing's attempts to undermine Western institutions. The People's Republic of China is, famously, not terrifically big on democracy at home. It appears, however, to take a keen interest in democracy elsewhere. Plus, we head to Canberra as Australia's Labour government considers whether to have another referendum on the monarchy. And then Monocle 24's Fernando Augusto Pacheco will be here to kick off his grand football-themed global countdown. This is quite a job, isn't it, Faye? It is. It is the World Cup of music, Emma. What can I say? Plenty of excitement ahead. And today we look at the number ones from groups A and B. Heading on the road to Doha is The Briefing with me, Emma Nelson. Russia has defended its decision to withdraw troops from the Ukrainian city of Kherson, the only provincial capital it had captured since the invasion began in February. In other developments, the top US General Mark Milley has said that around 100,000 Russian and 100,000 Ukrainian soldiers have been killed or injured since the start of the war. Well, let's get the latest now with the journalist and broadcaster James Rogers. James spent several years as the BBC's correspondent in Russia and is the author of Assignment Moscow, reporting on Russia from Lenin to Putin. And he's a regular voice here on Monocle 24. Hello, James. Hello, Emma. Um, let's just cover the, this withdrawal from Kherson to start off with. There is a huge amount of mistrust here. Ukraine is saying that this is a trap and we simply do not know, do we? No, we don't know what the situation is. And Ukraine, of course, uh, the Ukrainian um, political and military establishment are quite right to suspect a trap here. Um, This is a major climb down for Russia. Uh, It is a strategically important city they appearing to be preparing to abandon. Remember, the general, Sergei Surovikin, who took over command of of the forces in Ukraine with the idea of getting a grip on the situation, one of the first major public announcements, one of the first major public appearances he's made was that televised announcement yesterday of him talking about this plan to withdraw troops because they said they couldn't supply them anymore. So it may well be, uh, as the Ukrainians seem to suspect, that um, in a few days Russia is hoping to have drawn the advancing forces into a trap uh, and inflicted severe casualties on them. There are also perfectly you know, plausible speculation that there's any amount of booby traps, explosives left within the city. So Ukraine is very rightly to be right to be wary. But, you know, let's take a step back and look at the bigger picture. I think this is a significant um, reverse for Russia, particularly if we consider it in the, con- of the context of the way things were supposed to go when the war began back in February. Let's talk about the manner of the announcement as well. The, the withdrawal itself was not announced by Vladimir Putin, which some are suggesting is suggests it's, it, this is bad news for Russia because usually any news that is seen to be a good development in Putin's eyes is announced by Putin himself. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think it's, it's hugely significant that President Putin wasn't seen to be directly associated with his announcements yesterday. It was the general uh, and it was the defence minister, Sergei Shoigu, uh, who were tasked with with breaking the news, if you like, uh, to the Russian population. 
Uh, the effect of that, of course, in propaganda in public relations terms is that President Putin has a sort of distance, uh, possibly a bit of deniability. In other words, you know, there's never going to be television pictures of him having to uh, announce this tough decision, but rather uh, his subordinates. So in that sense, he... He, he he remains at one step one one step removed from from the direct responsibility for this, but of course uh, it was his his war that he launched in the first place, and and people may in the short term think of it in those terms, but not necessarily in the longer term. There is a suggestion now that the withdrawal from Kherson gives Ukrainian troops and Ukraine a fresh impetus to achieve the objective of getting Russia out. How much of a step forward is this for Ukraine? Well, I think it is a, it's a very significant step forward because, of course, again, if we try to think about this in the context of what Russia's war aims probably were when they started back in February, that was a rapid capture of the major cities of Kharkiv and, and, and even of the capital, Kiev. Remember that long military convoy that got bogged down and eventually had to withdraw. Um, so this was all supposed to be very over very, very quickly. Kherson was one big strategic achievement which the Russians could point to. And don't forget, Emma, it's only a few weeks since President Putin said that this was part of the territory that he was of which he announced the annexation, which he said would be Russian forever. And here we are just a few weeks later. Not only are they not even there, not only is the annexation not really proceeded in any meaningful um to any meaningful extent, but they're actually withdrawing. So this is this is pretty significant. Of course, it is going to be a big morale boost uh, for Ukrainian troops uh, at a time, you know, when there, there is no end to the war in sight, really. Uh, but Ukraine is, of course, doing um, a lot better on the battlefield than many people predicted it would, um, you know, once the, when the war started. Let's move on to this issue of loss. The fact that 200,000 people now either killed or injured since this war began. It just makes you think that this time last year, many of them were gearing up for the festive season, unaware of what was around the corner. Um, Volodymyr Zelensky has said that his country is going to, is littered with the bodies of the occupiers. It, it, it beggars belief, doesn't it, the scale of loss in Europe? Yes, it does. I mean, of course, we have to treat any sort of casualty figures with a, with a degree of caution. Um, these figures, of course, announced announced by a general in the United States. And of course, you know, there is an even handedness here in that he's suggesting that both Russia and Ukraine have suffered heavy casualties. And I think there's no doubt that they have. But we have to, I suppose, a little cautious about the exact numbers because we don't know where they came from. All that said, if we think back again to the beginning of the war, US intelligence at that time did prove to be pretty accurate. So it may be that they've got access to pretty accurate sources of information. But yes, I think you know, if we think about this in the longer term, even if the, this particular phase of the war does end whenever it does, sometime next year, sometimes the year after, whenever that is, the scars that this is going to leave in terms of economic damage, in terms of damage to supply lines, and in terms, of course, of how on earth Russia and Ukraine can ever live together for for generations now, really, it is going to be longer term problems that the that, that wider Europe and the wider world are going to have to address. Um, we have this, this issue, though, that um, Ukraine has been forced to deploy people and to see their loved ones fall. In Russia, how much of a pushback is there now when figures like this emerge, if they are indeed communicated to Russian citizens, that this may turn against Putin's war? I think that's a possibility in the longer term, of course, if um, if Russian media do report the figures of a, of a US general, which I think unlikely, given the fact that it sounds like pretty bad news for Russia, they would do so with a, with a huge sort of 
dismissal, dismissive tone, one would imagine. Um, longer term, of course, Russia, you know, it, it is important to remember Russia has got a much bigger population and a much bigger army uh, than Ukraine has. Whether this is going to turn into any longer term political discontent, I think we're still a way off from that. Of course, it's not impossible. Um, once the reality that the casualties figures start hitting home uh, among wider Russian society, that, of course, is one of the problems with the mobilization that President Putin was forced to announce. Because up until that point, this had been what was termed a special military operation. That phrase very carefully chosen to say this is not a war, this is not something that's going to affect people's day-to-day -day life. This is a special operation. That word special suggesting it will be conducted by specialists and it isn't going to affect ordinary people. That is now in the past. And of course, the longer that Russia continues to take casualties, the longer it continues to suffer reverses on the back of battlefield, the greater the prospect of there being some political consequences at home. James Rogers, thank you as ever for joining us on Monocle 24. Let's get to the day's other news headlines now. Here's MSL. The US President Joe Biden has said he intends to run for re-election in 2024 and that he will make a final decision in the early part of next year. It follows better-than-expected results for his Democratic Party, which fended off Republican gains in the US midterms. Officials in Afghanistan have announced that women will no longer be allowed to enter the country's amusement parks. The Taliban decree follows a broader announcement that prohibits women from accessing some public spaces in Afghanistan. And Amazon has become the first public company to lose a trillion dollars in market value. It's thought that rising inflation, the tightening of monetary policy and a slump in earnings have all contributed to the historic sell-off in the stock. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Emma. Thank you very much indeed for that, Emma. Now, Canada's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau warned earlier this week that China is attempting to undermine democratic institutions. It follows reports that Beijing has actively interfered in Canada's federal elections. Monocle's contributing editor Andrew Muller has the story. The People's Republic of China is, famously, not terrifically big on democracy at home. It appears, however, to take a keen interest in democracy elsewhere. This week, Canada's Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, announced that Beijing had attempted to plant a thumb on the scales in Canada's last but one federal election in 2019. Unfortunately, we're seeing uh, the country's... Uh, State actors from around the world, whether it's China or others, uh, are continuing uh, to play uh, aggressive games uh, with our institutions, with our democracies. The specifics provided to Trudeau by the Canadian Security Intelligence Service are basically these. That at least 11 candidates who stood in the 2019 election were in receipt of funding from China via various intermediaries. That China was running or trying to run agents in the offices of Canadian MPs. And that China was co-opting through various means former Canadian officials still believed to have some influence in Canadian politics. It is not clear whether the CSIS believes this meddling affected the outcome of the 2019 election, which Trudeau's Liberal Party won. We also don't know yet whether the CSIS think any similar stroke was pulled during the 2021 federal election, which Trudeau's Liberal Party also won, at least sufficiently to crack on with a minority government. We can probably go ahead and assume that China will deny everything. The relationship between countries can only be built on the basis of mutual respect 
equality and mutual benefit. And China-Canada relations are no exception. Canada should stop making remarks that are detrimental to China-Canada relations. China is not interested in Canada's internal affairs. To the obvious question, why would the Chinese Communist Party try to meddle in Canadian elections, there is an obvious retort. Why would it not? China is at least as ruthless as any other nation in pursuing and protecting its interests, probably isn't overly concerned about Canada's good opinion of it, and though nobody really knows how many people work for China's Ministry of State Security, doubtless has the manpower. Another startling illustration of China's reach and resolve emerged this week with the revelation that in 21 countries, including Canada, Spain, Italy and the UK, China has been operating a network of clandestine police stations. The unofficial police stations are allegedly being used to intimidate and silence Chinese dissidents abroad. In arguably related news, we also enjoyed a revival this week of the theme of Russian interference in American elections. Given the provenance of it, however, it is difficult to know whether to take the idea more seriously or less. Yevgeny Prigozhin, the shadowy Kremlin fixer who you may recall from the Foreign Desk Explainer of September 28th, popped up with the following cheerfully unequivocal statement. We have interfered, we are interfering, and we will continue to interfere. There are two reasons to apply a measure of scepticism to this pronouncement. One is that it is just about possible that someone of Yevgeny Prigozhin's general character may be lying. The other is that on the basis of this week's midterm elections, if Russia is interfering in US elections, it's not doing a much better job of that than it is of subjugating Ukraine. It remains an open question whether China and Russia are actually interfering in the elections of Western democracies or whether they just enjoy creating the impression that they do, or indeed whether the end result of either scenario is really much different. Because you don't even have to do anything especially complicated and or expensive, like fix the actual results, when such significant pluralities of Western voters are sufficiently credulous and or indifferent that you can screw with their democracy by other means. A new analysis by BuzzFeed found that false election stories from hoax sites and hyper-partisan blogs generated more engagement than content from real news sites during the last three months of the election. This is a thing that happened in the United States in 2016. In Houston, police were summoned to a mercifully minor dust-up outside the city's Islamic Dua Center. A rally had been summoned by an organization called Heart of Texas, which professed to be concerned about Islamization, as if the Lone Star was in danger of being joined by a crescent moon. It had been confronted by a counter-demonstration wrangled by the United Muslims of America. You may already have guessed the punchline. Neither Heart of Texas nor United Muslims of America existed, beyond the Facebook pages created in a Russian troll farm. The total outlay on a PSYOPs operation which created considerable rage and fear and wasted proportionate police time and resources was estimated at not more than a couple of hundred dollars.
Multiply that by hundreds or even thousands, and for an outlay which still amounts to a meagre heap of beans amid a major power's budget, you sow incalculable rancour, confusion and anger among the population of your rival. It all seems like stuff that democracies operating in good faith should be able to fix, or that half-awake citizens can fix for them. One does not need, for example, to be any kind of paranoid nationalist to believe that one's own politicians, or indeed their parties, should not be on the hook to any foreign country, let alone foreign countries which are more or less openly hostile to one's own. And this should apply to all sorts of funding. It is, for example, outrageous and shameful that British MPs across the political spectrum have, in recent years, accepted money to appear on the state propaganda broadcasters of Russia and Iran. If your representative's wages are being paid at all at any remove by someone else's government, the next election might be a good time for you to stop paying them. For Monocle24, I'm Andrew Muller. Thank you, Andrew. You were the briefing. It has now been two months since the death of Queen Elizabeth II. At the time, there was a deal of understandable shushing at any mention that this might be the moment for a reassessment of the longer-term role of the monarchy as head of state in countries such as Australia. Well, in Australia, the debate has gained volume once again. Let's get the latest from the Saturday Papers' chief political correspondent, Karen Middleton. Karen joins us on the line from Canberra. Good evening. Hello, Emma. So at the time of the Queen's death, there were some mutterings and a slightly non-committal statement from your Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese. But what's changed since then? Well, I don't know how much has changed. I think for a long time, people have taken the view that while Queen Elizabeth was alive, it was something uh, that wasn't going to be progressed, the the idea of Australia becoming a republic. And then I think as soon as she passed away, a, a number of people started speaking about it. The Republican movement here started talking about it. And there's been a bit more discussion in the wake of the question about whether or not the next monarch, King Charles, would be on our currency. We have the portrait of Queen Elizabeth on our $5 note. And so it is the only note in our currency that currently has the sovereign on it. And so the question has been, well, will King Charles be on the note? And that, I guess, has really regenerated the debate about the whole situation. But there's always been a view that once Queen Elizabeth was no longer living, it would become a live debate again. And I guess that's where we're, that's what we're seeing. So what is being debated and, and how serious is this being taken? Oh, I think Australians, a lot of Australians have been serious for a long time about moving towards becoming a republic and no longer being a constitutional monarchy. Um, and so in that sense, that's what the objective is for a lot of people. If you if you run a, a, an opinion poll in Australia and you ask the state the straight question, do you think Australia should become a republic, you'll get a majority yes view. We did actually have a referendum on that subject way back in 1999, but the question was not as straight forward as that. It was uh, it was put to Australians in the form of one particular model of a republic in which the parliament would choose the person to be um, the, the president and not, not put that to a public vote. And people didn't like that idea. So it, it went down. And so that's been portrayed around the world as Australia not being Republican in sentiment when I think that's quite wrong. The sentiment probably is majority for moving away from the monarchy. But the question is to what and what model is best? So Anthony Albanese's government is planning to put this to a vote. Tell us what's that's about. 
Well, we actually have a minister for the Republic now, um, which is the first. In fact, people noted the irony of the Queen's representative, the Governor-General, swearing in the, the new ministry after our election in May, one member of whom was, you know, it was his job to remove the Governor-General. <laughs> Ultimately, so you know there is some irony in that. But the objective, I, I think, of the current government is to hold a referendum, not in this term of office, because they have other priorities, and a referendum on Indigenous affairs, and particularly on establishing an Indigenous voice to the Australian Parliament. But they say that if they were to win a second term, and the term is three years, that they would make it a priority to hold a referendum on a republic in that second term with the objective of, of, of changing our form of government. Is there anybody saying, no, we still desperately want to keep the monarchy and King Charles in particular? Yes, there's, an, there's a, a monarchist movement in Australia and a lot of people um, who support either support that actively or, or perhaps passively say, why it's not broke, don't fix it. Why, why do we need to change things? Everything's perfectly fine as it is. And I think almost... Is, is, there's been a resurgence of sentiment around the monarchy, you could argue, in the wake of Queen Elizabeth's death with all the attention on, on the monarchy, monarchy and the pomp and ceremony around that. Um, so it, it, there is still a, a segment of the population that say we should hang on to the monarchy. But I think increasingly there's a number of Australians who say we're a modern nation, we are our own nation, we don't need a foreign head of state. And it's just a question of the process of getting there. Is there a sense, therefore, I think you just answered this question, that we are now embarking upon on a path from which there is inevitably no return? I think so. I think we're headed in that de- in that direction generally. It's a question of how long it will take. It's been more than 20 years since this debate first was raised under the Keating government. Uh, it flared, as I say, with that referendum and failed, and then it's been dormant. But we really are seeing it much more enlivened now, and I think ultimately we will become a republic. It's just a question of how long it takes and, and what form of government we end up with. And does this mean, obviously, the departure from the Commonwealth as well? What would that mean? Well, not necessarily. Um, You could still be in the Commonwealth of Nations and be a republic. So that's one of the arguments that some Republicans put. Like, we don't need to throw the whole lot away. We can still retain the bits we like and we can just no longer have um, the monarch as our head of state. Um, So, you know, there are possibilities around that. But uh, the biggest controversy is going to be about how we um, choose that head of state and whether a popularly elected president is acceptable. That certainly was the popular view, but of course that makes arguably uh, an elected president more politically powerful than a prime minister who's only directly elected by the constituents um, in their own electorate. So that argument will be ongoing, I think, and I think there's a lot of people who believe it should be a minimalist form of republic with uh, a parliamentary appointment, not a popularly elected president, but that's where we're going to have the argument. Karen, thank you so much. That was the Saturday Paper's Chief Political Correspondent, Karen Middleton. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. Finally, strap yourselves in because we have a special global countdown. It's not just limited to one place this time. In fact, we've got something that's going to happen for the next few weeks. To explain everything is, well, there is only one person who can do this, and he's resplendent in lemon in my studio. Fernanda Agusta Pacheco with the smartest lapels and top pockets I've ever seen. (laughs) Tell us 
what we're going to be doing with Global Countdown. I am immensely excited about this. This is very exciting. It is indeed the World Cup of music, Emma. And, and you know, today we're looking at the groups A and B from the World Cup. And here is how it's going to work. Uh, I'm looking at the number one songs in the countries in those groups, which I'll tell you in a bit. And there are a few rules here as well in place. It can only be a local artist. And if you ask me, what about if the number one song is not from the country? Well, I go for number two, number three, until I find a local artist. So, you know, the rules are there. And at the end of the segment, I'll choose one winning song for each group. And they will be uh, at the semifinals, which will be, I believe, in three to four weeks. Hey, you've clearly gone to work with a shovel here. Exactly. <laughs> There's very strict rules. Uh, and of course, it's not just me following my heart. I mean, I look at the relevance and the quality of the song as well. I hope you agree with my choices, Emma. But, you know, it could be controversial. You <laughs> never know. I suspect, Faye, I have very little choice in the matter. <laughs> but, so the idea is these are not the football songs. Sometimes they could be if they are number right. one. Okay. We, might, we might see this a little bit, actually. A little bit. But these are the songs which are currently number one. Yes. Okay. And Always current. So we're not expecting them to last until the end of the, end of the World Cup. So this actually is a... Sh- an ever-shifting game that we're playing Exactly. Here. So you might go through the playoff, but then if your number one in a few weeks is terrible, goodbye. You choose your different team members, don't you? Exactly. Who's playing up front, who's behind. Right, so first and foremost, this is complicated Yes. Stuff. So we're going to have to keep it simple. So today we have... This is going. This is a long session we're in yes. for. Okay, <laughs> we try to be snappy. We'll try and be snappy, but I suspect this may go on for quite. I hope anyone listening doesn't have anything to do for the next half hour. <laughs> uh, sit down, have a listen. So, Group A, we have Qatar, Ecuador, Senegal, and Netherlands. Yes, fine. And then once we've gone through them, we go through Group B, who are England, Iran, USA, and Wales. That's a lively collection. And then you will tell us who you believe you want to go through from group A and then from group B. Yes. Right, here we go. Easy peasy. Off uh, we go, you start. We start in Qatar, which is uh, the host country as well. Mm. And the number one song, I mean, funnily enough, it's one of the official tracks of the World Cup. And I have to say, the Qatari music industry, I mean, I think they're still beginning. There are not many Qatari uh, music artists out there. Well, but I don't know. <laughs> one of their local artists is indeed a number one, uh, singing with others, including Davido in Trinidad and Cardona. But Aisha, she is the one. And this is the song called Higher, Higher, which means something like Let's Go. Uh, let's have a listen to this track. Yeah, you can ride it for life But if it changes, it's better When you got love on your side yeah. You know we're better together Don't wanna wait forever You know we're better together Okay, so that immediately, it, it sort of takes you straight to a stadium where you're queuing for your overpriced litre of pop. Very much and so. And you're, you're ready to go and say that and it's and it's resounding around the stadium while, while stuff's happening. That's the vibe uh, she's going for. She was picked up because she was a social media star singing a cover of songs as well, of different uh, tracks. She has a beautiful voice. That's all I can say about Aisha there with Qatar. It's lovely and the video is quite nice all bobbing around in the desert. It's good fun. Um, Qatar does reggae. I mean, how? Bi- I'm not expecting you to know the answer to this, uh, but Qatar's reggae scene. I mean, it's not that big, right? I have to say. So <laughs> they, they have to hire usually artists from Nigeria, not on other places. But you know, they do have Aisha. At least she's number one. They haven't with this one though. Yes. This is local. That's local 
That's a local gem. <laughs> Thank you. Right. Because uh, ranking fairly highly in my book, but I know that my voice does not matter here. Let's move to Ecuador. Ecuador is, was a very difficult one, uh, Emma, because... <laughs> You know, I looked at their charts. They're very rare to see an Ecuadorian artist there. You know, it, it, it's dominated by artists from Puerto Rico, Colombia. But they do have, you know, a local artist here with... And again, it's another official World Cup song. So it's not my intention here to only do football tracks. But, you know, they are happening. I have to respect what the charts are saying. Uh, this song is by Naiza and Jose Victoria. The song is called Ecuador Grita Gol. Ecuador shouts goal. Let's have a listen. Okay, that's actually better when you listen to it than when you watch the video, which, dare I say, looks a little bit like it's done as a sort of... Yes. (laughs) I was going to say 14-year-old's graphic design project. (laughs) Sorry. But Cheap sums it up much more pithily. Um, So Spotify says that Niza is a multi-talented Ecuadorian artist who has quickly built a forceful path in the Latin music industry with hard work from an early stage. She sounds like a bit of a grafter, but my kind of gal. Exactly. Uh, We're going to a country with a... a, I I wouldn't say a richer music scene, but, you know, I like music from Senegal, uh, usually. Uh, And the number one, of course, comes from the queen of Senegalese music. Uh, Who's the queen of Senegalese music? (laughs) Well, let's have a listen. It's Vivian she did with Yok Yok. a better listen than watch yes. because the video is wildly distracting. If you've got 10 <laughs> minutes that you really don't mind losing out of your life, I do reckon, recommend that you go and watch this lady's video. It's bonkers. It's bonkers. And it is a love song as well. I was, oh, I was yes. reading lyrics, of course. Lovely. Very, very beautiful. She has a Lebanese father and a Mauritanian mother. So, you know, it's a, it's a good sign of the multiculturalism of Senegal as and well. And the, the video itself is of a wedding day, a happy event. She gets the guy, she gets the dress. There's a woman playing the violin in her bedroom when she wakes up, but we're not going to worry about She's that. She's the queen. She's the queen. She's it. She's absolutely the cat's pyjamas, having a lovely, lovely time. Unlike the poor souls in the Netherlands video. And again, the video... Which is where we're going next. Exactly. The video for this track doesn't really match the song because the video, you know, there's a crime scene happening. It's all very mysterious. But the track itself is a lovely electropop, you know, bop, you know, from a a band called Gold Band. Uh, And this this song is called... Nudreval, which I think means something like emergency. You've practiced that, haven't you? Oh, yes. Yes. And and 10 out of 10, winner. Let's have a listen. Oh, that 
That's super stuff. Oh, you've gone all funny. Yes, it's good. <laughs> it is good, isn't it? And we sound with an element of surprise. Again, this is a thing. Don't watch the video, just listen to the music. There is a whole different item to be made about how we are perhaps getting the resurgent of the interesting yet irrelevant narrative video that we, I think we all saw in the 1980s. Exactly. Or some of us saw it for a million years old. But th- this, this is good. That sounds like a proper piece of music for proper radio and I'm having a bit of a proper dance. Yes. And Emma, are you ready to group because it's it's a hard group you know how, how do you call it uh, the football experts the you know the deaf group I believe that's how we call it in Portuguese when you know there's very good players in there uh, all I can say that group B is much stronger group than group A are we group of death here in terms of music or players or music. both music music okay because I was about to say we've got England Iran USA and Wales now I know that our pr- producer Reese will be <laughs> will be clearly very proud of his nation. So we will be bearing that in mind when we're talking about the next bit because we don't want to offend anyone. Um, Okay, let's begin with England. Sam Smith, big hitter, hugely important figure in, in, in British music, number one, with a very complicated and rather... There is a nasty piece of music, but quite interesting. Yes, uh, I would describe. I wrote, I wrote, I scribbled here. S and M dark electro beats. It's a massive hit, unholy in the United States, in England, and in many other countries. So well done, Sam Smith. I, I quite enjoy. It's a powerful track. And Who doesn't love a bit of S and M electro beat on the radio? I still haven't found someone like this. But uh, shall we have a listen to Unho- try Soho on a Friday evening? Exactly. <laughs> Let's have a listen, Sam Smith. Unholy. That's such a good piece of music. Great start, For all right? the wrong reasons. It's brilliant. It's such a good song. So, right, we've got that starting England with, with Group B. Um, gosh, we're a long way away from Senegal and, and, and Ecuador from Group A, aren't we? We've just upped the game massively. Apologies to Group A. Um, we now have a handbrake turn because we leave the S&M electropop of Sam Smith for Iran. Iran, and that's a very emotional track. I have to say, Emma, this song by a singer called Shervan, uh, it was the anthem song for uh, for the Mas Amisi protest as well uh, in Iran. And in fact, uh, two days after the song was released, Shervan was arrested and he was released on bail. It's a beautiful track. It's called Barei and it's for women. It's for a life of freedom for women. So he's a very brave uh, man to release a song. And the song has been an instant hit all over social media in Iran. And it's been picked up even by the likes of Coldplay played yes, it it's, live a few weeks ago. This is a powerful piece of music. If I may say, I even actually uh, shed a few tears. Let's have a listen to this track. <laughs> Goosebump moment. I'm, we're both here yeah. feeling goosebumps. And look at the lyrics, Emma. For my sister, your sister, our sister. Oh my God. I'm getting emotional here, live on radio. I like Group B. I like Group B. Takes as us well. everywhere. 
Uh, USA next. USA. And, and and all I have to say about this, about Taylor Swift, I mean, she is incredible. She is powerful. She she's commands. She's a machine. She's a machine. I mean, she's... In the nicest possible way. No offense to Miss Swift. Absolutely. She basically, she's the only person that managed to have the whole top 10 in the US with tracks from her new album. That's incredible. She still, people wants to still buy her albums and CDs. She has a very devoted fan base. And I like her music. Mm. Let, let's have a listen. Woman Ta- entirely in control of her own destiny. I love that. Marvelous. I do too. Right. Okay, Ta- Miss Swift, what are we hearing from you? Antihero. It's me. like this I do okay why do do we like this I think the production is amazing there's some very discreet synths in the background I think she's a great songwriter as well I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not like a, a Swifty. I think that's how they call the, the Taylor Swift fans, right? But I everyone's res- a Swifty somewhere. Everyone is a Swifty. Perhaps even I am uh, secretly. Um, but Emma, I think we should end with Wales. I mean, that's an interesting one as well. Right. But again, mentioning the fact that our producer Reese very keen for this to do well. I'm scared about how to pronounce the okay. names, but he did. He did tell me how to do it, but probably I'll, he's I'll looking. Say, he's watching through the clouds. Oh Here I'll, we go. I'll hide myself. Okay. But, but before I play this track, I have to say the song was written in 1983, and it's a song basically. You know about the survival of the Welsh language, so it's a very proud song. Let's try uh, not to massacre the Welsh language when we introduce <laughs> it. Then. Oh God, I'm sorry for all, all our Welsh listeners. And by the way, one more thing: this is the official track for their own World Cup team as well. Last time Wales was in the World Cup was back in 1958, so clearly it's a big deal for them. It is to be here, and okay. it's a beautiful, powerful track by uh, David Ewan with Ima Ohid. I'm still here. Thumbs up from Reese. I think the word we could describe that is rousing. And I'm just going to explain Omar Ohid. Yes, apparently. powerful. I might even download this track later on. Yeah, we're going to have a sing song. <laughs> exactly. Um, it's it's wonderful. Right, so we Ooh. have our group A and our group B. So let's just quickly recap. We're now coming to the, the, the interesting bit. Um, group A and group B, who you believe should go through to the next round. Just explain to us the rules, the rules as briefly as you can, just one more time. Yeah, it's not just I'm going to choose one track from each group to go mm-hmm. ahead to the semi-finals. And again, it's not just my personal taste. It's about relevance. It's about the quality of the music. There will be controversies. There will be disagreements. But, you know, this is just a little bit of fun as well. I know. I love a controversial bit of fun. So, Group A, just to recap. Qatar, Ecuador, Senegal, Netherlands. I think I know which way you're going from the one that you danced the most to in the studio. This is where, ladies and gentlemen, I have the advantage because I can see what what phase. Should I reactions. just tell the winner? Go on. The winner is the Netherlands. Okay. They are classified to the semi-finals. Oh, do, is it possible to play just that a tiny little bit more? Is that going to confuse of the Netherlands? A I bit think more so. Of the Netherlands. Can we go back? Why did you choose the Netherlands? Well, because it's a great electropop beat, you know, and it's good to see that their local band as well, number one, and their former plasterers as well. So they changed their careers and they changed it very well. Oh, so I do well love done. a former plasterer. Right, I think we do believe we have their music. Let's have a listen. There is a no- 
the winner for Group A. Yes. And, and a worthy one, I think. You, you're, you're happy with that one? Will be added to the M24 playlist. That's an exclusive news I can Excellent. Tell you. I can't wait to introduce that. Um, okay. Ooh. In that context, actually. So, right. Group B. We had England, Iran, USA and Wales. Emma, that was a difficult one. I've changed my mind, actually, uh, during, you know, the research. But I think... You know, we need to care about the relevance of tracks and, you know, the power, the power they have. And with that, it can only be Iran, the winner of Group B. And I believe we might play even a little bit of this wonderful track by Shervan Barai. Again, another worthy winner, I think, you think? Ooh, good, very good, actually, the start of the Global Countdown World Cup. We have launched it in an incredibly powerful way. Thank yes. you so much for that, Thanks Fernando. To you. And now this time next week, what do you do with us? Is it Group C and D? Absolutely. How many groups are they? There are, well, I believe there are eight. A gift that will keep on giving. <laughs> yes. If you're a fan of the briefing on a Thursday... You've got a lot more of this to come. <laughs> Fernando Agostipasecheco, thank you so much as ever for doing all such hard work on that one. Uh, we'll be examining the best groups, as uh, we mentioned a moment ago, for us Group C and Group D on next week's programme. But for now, that's all we have time for today's programme. The warmest of thanks to my guests and to the producer, Rhys James. Our researcher was Emily Sands and our studio manager was Callum McLean. The briefing is back tomorrow at the same time. I hope you can join me for that. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you.